This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dimabre. And I'm Yannick Marianne. And what's our topic for today, Yannick? Cross-platform development. Good. And before we start, we have some follow-up as usual. So I'll start first. On the topic that never dies, which is on episode 2, mobile payments, we got a lot of great news since the last two weeks. So we'll start with um, some news from the UK. So uh, Apple and the UK media was reporting that right now it is a tipping point for Apple because the ma- majority of UK like POS system or register are not access- accepting limitless payments. So right now, uh, like with any NFC transaction, like in Canada, uh, any Apple Pay or NFC transaction were limited to, I think in, U- in the UK was £20 or £25. And since Apple Pay has been deemed so secure, they've decided to remove that limitation for it. So right now, uh, you can use Apple Pay in a contactless card terminal terminal and it should go through which is amazing and i'm a bit jealous here in canada if you want to have access to that specific feature uh you still need to be on amex which is the only bank that accepted it to come back a bit home uh let's talk about canada again uh there's two new updates regarding two banks uh, mbna and hsbc which we discussed a bit last uh, last episode hbc is now teasing it on their website and MBNA Canada is saying that it should be launching Apple Pay uh, in June. Last but not least, we will talk about our uh, uh, about the main competing solution to Apple Pay, Android Pay. Oh, which... I thought it was Samsung Pay. Oh, come on. Samsung Poor Samsung. Is... Yeah, but nobody cares about Samsung <laughs> Pay. Okay. Well, it could be worse. It could be currency. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it died already. It, it did. Like it did. Okay. Oof. But uh, if we were to talk about Android Pay, Android Pay just finally launched in Canada. It launched yesterday on May uh, 31st. And most of the Canadian banks uh, are, is, uh, is accepted through uh, Android Pay. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, right now it's mostly for uh, credit cards. Uh, the support for Interac and debit cards should come on June 5th when this episode will be released so when you hear me say talking about android pay you should be able to add most of your mastercard visa and um, oh no amex will be coming soon the same as with my bank tangerine sad panda but that's okay so if you're on bmo desjardins or any most uh, many major canadian bank you should be able to at least right now add your mastercard visa or debit card yeah, and one of the things I noticed uh, yesterday is they seem to be pushing it really, really strongly uh, with promotional materials and stuff. I don't know if you've seen anything in Montreal about this, but I know yesterday I was using the YouTube app, and strangely strangely enough, like the YouTube app on iOS keeps showing me ads for Android Pay that send me to the Play Store to download the Android Pay app, and I'm like, yeah, but I'm on an iPhone. What, is, what good is this going to do for me? Um, but yeah, I've been seeing lots and lots of ads for Android Pay online, so I think they're doing a big promotional push for the launch, which I think is a great idea because Apple Pay has been out there for a while and now finally Android users can join the party. Yeah, I haven't looked that much about uh, the website for the Canadian banks, but it seems that it's pretty kind of under the radar for now. I haven't seen any ads like the same way that uh, I've seen uh, ads in the wild for when Apple Pay was added. I mean, I think Desjardins had a big push 
when they added Apple Pay yeah. uh, through through billboards stuff like that. I think BMO had the same too. And right now it's still a bit under their radar, but if it if it was like with the Apple Pay launch, it should come in the coming weeks. Just one last note before we go. Um, there, you know that there's a dollar store next to my house, right? Yes. Okay. They have a sign that says "We now accept Apple Pay," and it makes me laugh every single time I go next to it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's interesting because now, yeah, it's uh, they have the sign, the, the official sign. Yeah. Wow, nice, nice. It's like I can't yeah. believe Dollarama thought it was worth it to actually make a sign that says we support Apple Pay. Wow, impressive. I know Apple is providing with official Apple stickers that shows that, like it's the Apple Pay. And we have a couple of those uh, at work because of uh, some of the banks we int- uh, integrate in our POS system. Uh on uh, on a different episode, on episode uh, 60, when Tony was able to join us and talk about uh, Zelda, he kind of mentioned he was about to maybe at some point get a Switch, and that happened in the last week. So right now, I think it has been two or three days since he bought it. Um, to report, it is the neon blue-red uh, model, and I think he bought Mario Kart and obviously Zelda again. Uh, so right now I haven't been able to play that much, but I expect in the coming weeks we will be able to do either a segment or a full episode on my impression. Maybe Tony will be able to join us back and talk about his own impression about the Switch. There's no plan yet. I'm just teasing, teasing a bit. Who knows? But at least uh, we did mention that we wanted to talk about the Switch in the future, and I think this future is near. I guess I should also secretly admit that I almost bought a switch last week yeah it was funny when i told you that tony is kind of was kind of looking for one and then he's like yeah kind of me too so <laughs> who knows maybe what we'll, yannick will buy a switch over the summer and then we'll be able to do a switch episode maybe uh, i do have switch follow-up uh, if i can segue into that yeah let's do your switch follow-up but i do have a last item after that sure uh, so this is follow-up to episode 56, which was uh, my impressions from the Nintendo Switch trial event in Tokyo. And every single third-party game that was playable at that event is now released. So the last two that were going to come out uh, last week were Disgaea 5 Complete and Ultra Street Fighter 2. Uh, another thing that I talked about on that episode was the rumored fighting stick uh, for... Um, for the Switch, which is now available. It's another one of Hori's um, Real Arcade Pro fighting sticks that they make for all platforms, except now it works on the Switch, which is really cool. Um, and that means that the three games that are remaining from that event that are not yet released are Super Mario Odyssey, which was not playable at all. Uh, well, it still hasn't been playable at any event. Uh, it presumably is going to be at E3 in two weeks. Uh, Arms, which is coming out like in a week or two, and Splatoon 2, which is coming out, like, next month, I believe. Um, so that's exciting. But then there was, like, this big bomb that was dropped last week uh, for the Japanese market, which is that Monster Hunter Double Cross is coming to the Switch. Uh, I should point out that Monster Hunter Double Cross is a 3DS game that came out on the same day as the Switch, uh, which was odd timing, and everybody thought, hmm, it's coming out on the same day. Maybe they'll announce the Switch version. Well, they announced it last week, and it's coming out. Unfortunately, in August, uh, I was hoping it was going to be in November to actually give time for Switch supply to actually come back up. But no, it's coming out in August, which is terrible because ARMS comes out this month and it is seeming to be an actually huge success. Uh, 
judging by how much people seem to engage with that game when new information is available. Splatoon 2 is coming afterwards, which is going to be brutal. And then the month right after that is Monster Hunter Double Cross. Uh, and just, it's hard to understate the impact that this is going to have on Switch sales in Japan because the PSP more or less lived because of Monster Hunter. The 3DS, the only reason that it did not completely explode is when uh, Monster Hunter Tri-G came out in Japan. Um, basically, Monster Hunter is able to carry entire systems by itself because everyone in Japan plays Monster Hunter with other people, especially on the train. Uh, and it coming to the Switch is a huge deal. You can import your save uh, from the 3DS version or from the 3DS version of Monster Hunter Cross, which is the old version I have since it's sort of an expanded version of Cross. And I was very, very tempted to pick up a Switch now because I'm thinking... If I don't get one now, I'm not going to be able to get one when Monster Hunter Double Cross comes out. And it's just going to be harder to get. And then it's going to be too late to basically play with friends. So eh, it's kind of a messy situation. Uh, I'm starting to think that maybe I'm just not going to get a Switch for Double Cross. And I'm just going to wait for other games to come out. And maybe jump on when Monster Hunter 5 comes out. Uh, because... This is just a remade version. I can just buy the 3DS version, play it on 3DS, and then move on, and that'll be fine for me. Um, so yeah, that's basically the Switch news that I had. Oh, there's also the thing about the headset, but I don't want to talk about that. It's too sad. <laughs> but on that note about the headset, I would say that I'm super excited about Splatoon 2. Um, uh, I think we haven't done that yet, but 29 already discussed about uh, pre-ordering ARMS and Splatoon 2. So even if it was a bit, I uh, was expecting to him to buy his Switch a bit later this summer. Uh, I think it's kind of a good time because there's a lot of good games coming in the next few weeks. So I'm kind of super excited. Sadly, I won't be able to use his Switch, but <laughs> oh well. I'll try to find five minutes every couple of days to just at least play uh, Mario Kart 8 for now. Yeah, another reason I was thinking of getting the Switch is because. I'm starting my job next Thursday, and I have a 58-minute commute every morning. And I was thinking, hmm, it would be nice to have a Switch to play during my commute. But and I'm like, yeah, I still have a bunch of 3DS games to beat, so maybe I should go through that first. Yeah, and not to put pressure on you, but if you were to get a Switch, and maybe some of the games that Tony and I will buy, we could do some special episode, live stream again on Twitch, stuff like that. Well, we need capture cards for that. Oh, because the Switch right. doesn't stream That's directly. <laughs> crap. Oh well, we could figure out something. There is a share button on the Switch. You just can't share anything except <laughs> screenshots, which kind of sucks. Oh, uh, we could share screenshot every like uh, one <laughs> sixty seconds. frames per second screenshot sharing. That would be good. Too bad that most games don't play at sixty FPS. Oh, oh okay. okay. Uh, I heard you had another item. You can do that, and then I'll do my yeah. last item. My last item is regarding our last episode, episode 64, when we were talking about our WWDC prediction and wishes. And I kind of was drawing a blank on the Siri kit intent list. So I went through the documentation and I was surprised because I thought I was only missing one. And then uh, while thinking about it and looking at the commission, the one I was trying to find, uh, the fifth one, was photos, where you can search in photo services. But yeah. what I realize is there's more than five. So if I were to go through the list, there's voice over IP that I forgot. There's uh, uh messaging. I think we talked about messaging payments. Yes. 
photos I forgot. That was the one. The other one that I forgot are workouts. Oh, okay. Car commands, which I completely forgot, which says like the user intention is like activate car, get status of the car's lock, get the QN fuel or power level. I think it's for the, uh, like, remember they were showing a uh, uh, Volkswagen yeah, app yeah, to yeah. show your uh, Golf E or E-Golf car status. And the last one is CarPlay, where you can change the audio source, change the climate control settings, start a defroster, stuff regarding a car, even change the seat temperature. And last but not least, I think, no, you were talking about uh, ride hailing, but there's also a restaurant reservation on that list. It's weird so because I, you never ever hear of anyone doing these things with Siri. That's true, and that's why I was so, so surprised that the list was bigger than I remembered it. So that's it. Hopefully, we will see one that we like. I did we discuss. I want uh, audio apps to have full on access to Siri. That's kind of the one missing there. I expect to have others. Maybe I don't know. HomeKit, uh, like not HomeKit, but like an own automation. That could be added there, if even if you don't support OnKit, who knows? Uh, I think we'll see next week. Yep. So let's go on your last item, and then we'll be able to talk about your topic of the week. Yep. So um, several episodes ago, I don't remember the exact episode number. Uh, I was talking in follow up about PS4 Pro and how PS4 Pro was getting such good results at 4K output um, using basically like unconventional rendering techniques uh, that the PC could maybe borrow these things to get better graphics performances. Uh, graphics performance. And I usually... Uh, I made the case, basically, that like maybe Apple should start introducing these things into their graphics frameworks or whatever so that MacBooks can stop sucking at gaming. Uh, because right now, they're pretty bad. Uh, and what ended up happening last week is friends of the show digital foundry uh put out a video called 4k gaming what can pc learn from ps4 pro and it's basically like hey why can't pcs do checkerboarding and hey why can't pcs do dynamic resolution scaling and all of these techniques which are used on ps4 pro to attain great results at 4k even though it's not always really like native 4k um, because it turns out that actually rendering real 4K is computationally ex- exp- uh, expensive. Who thought that that was the case? Um, but since PS4 Pro is cheating and getting away with it, then maybe the PC can borrow some techniques. Uh, so really interesting video. If you're interested in the possible outcomes of those techniques coming to PC, I don't really think it's likely that developers are going to um, adopt these things, because if there's anything we know about the PC crowd is that they are very, very particular about how their graphics are and they don't they basically don't care if the result looks good they just care that they did it in the most like manliest way possible uh and in this case the manliest way possible is not to use checkerboarding or any cheating techniques to achieve that stuff i don't know go watch the video if you're interested in that stuff i just wanted to bring it up because i thought it was pretty funny to see them basically repeat stuff i said on the show good let's start moving into your main topic then okay so I have a lot of stuff to rant about with regards to cross-platform development. Am Uh, I surprised about that? You shouldn't be. Uh, If you've been listening to the show, you should not really be surprised that I am very, very, well, upset with a lot of things, but uh, especially... You're always upset about a lot of things. Yes, but especially cross-platform development frameworks, I think that they give bad applications. And today, we're going to have a complete, like, complaint extravaganza because we're going to complain about 
cross-platform development in three different fields, game development, mobile development, and desktop development. And Mm. I think by the end of the episode, you will be tired of hearing me complain for the entire year of 2017. Whoa, 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 that's big. I expect you to complain throughout the rest of the year. There was a lot of um, pent-up emotions, and I'm just letting them all out in this episode. So I think we're going to start with game development. So game development is a very odd case uh, for cross-platform development. A lot of people would say, like, why are you complaining about cross-platform game development? This is a pro, not a con. Um, And I'm not necessarily against the idea of cross-platform development for game game development, because if you're not a first-party studio, it's not really financially viable for you to do anything else. Uh, It's sort of the norm. And nowadays, it's fairly common for most game developers, big and small, to rely on existing existing engines. Uh, The most common engines are Unity, Unreal Engine, and the Valve Source Engine, for the most part. Uh, And the reason game developers tend to flock to existing engines is because the work that's needed to get a competitive 3D engine running on multiple platforms nowadays is not trivial. Uh, It's especially true now that multiple companies and platforms have huge low-level graphics interfaces. Uh, One of them is Apple's Metal, there's uh, DirectX 12 from Microsoft, and there's Vulkan from the Kronos Group, which is the group that gave us OpenGL. And ensuring that your engine runs well on all of these and gets optimal performance is a ton of work to actually do. And uh, I'm just going to devote like this entire section of the episode to complain about Unity, uh, because it's the de facto default in the industry, and it's sort of kind of shit sometimes. And a lot of that comes down to stuff that the developers do with it, and, well, you'll see. So, the first complaint I have about it is, until rather recently, Unity wasn't built as a 2D engine. For most of Unity's lifetime, it was meant to be ent- used entirely as a 3D engine. Uh, the problem with that is that developers saw that Unity provided so much functionality to them right away that they just started to cheat, and they said, okay, well, we're going to use this 3D engine, but just use flat paper-like objects and a fixed camera, and we'll make 2D games that way on Unity. Um, and this, like, happened for a really, really, really long time, until four years ago, uh, when Unity added a 2D mode to their engine. Or, anyway, that's what they called it. But in practice, it's not really a 2D mode. Uh, it doesn't make Unity a 2D game engine at all. It just adds constraints and defaults to the scene editor in the development environment to facilitate the workarounds that people were already using. Uh, which means it doesn't actually fix any of the issues that were underlying Unity being a 3D engine for 2D games. It's just making it easier to do something that they probably shouldn't have been doing in the first place. So my recommendation is... Unlike 3D, where graphics hardware keeps improving the degree of realism that can be achieved and all that stuff, the complexity of building a 2D game engine of your own hasn't scaled in the same way over time. Writing a 2D game engine directly against the graphics API of your target platforms isn't actually that hard, and if you build it that way, it becomes rather easy to translate your own engine to other platforms' native languages and graphics APIs instead of relying on someone else to do it for you. Now, you might be saying, well, if you're running 2D games in Unity, what's the big deal? Is Surely it performs fine. It's probably great. Why are you complaining? Is it just like a theoretical on-paper thing? And the reason I'm so upset about it is because of the performance on consoles. Uh, there are tons of Unity games that have been ported to PS4. And about two of them have a stable frame rate. And this even includes the 2D ones. In fact, some of the 2D ones perform even worse than the 3D games, which is completely unacceptable. And 
lots of indie developers enter the scene having this expectation that using Unity means you can deploy a console version by checking a checkbox and rebuilding your project. However, they appear to forget in the process that getting your game to run well is a completely other ballgame. And in the case of PS4 Unity, Garbage Collection can randomly choose to hang the entire system when you least expect it, which is tons of fun. Everybody loves Garbage Collection. Uh, it's funny that you mention all of these because without going into much details, uh, one of my friends is in game development and he mentioned all of what you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah, except I experience it from the gamer's point of view and it's even more frustrating because I know exactly what's going wrong. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's not completely hopeless if you have an existing Unity 2D game and you want to port it to PS4 or whatever. You can do a lot and a lot of optimization work uh, to make your game playable. However, most don't bother, or they don't have the budget to afford to do so, and oftentimes, they wait until after the game is out, and then the initial bad impression happens, and then you're screwed anyway. Uh, so just take all of that into consideration. So that's my little Unity complaint bubble. It's... Little? Yeah. Well, the oh next... Oh my goodness. There's a next I... rant, but it has nothing to do with Unity. It has to do with... People who make games and port them to the Mac, or say they port them to the Mac and don't port them to the Mac. So, my next rant is about game developers who say they have Mac versions, but then distribute a copy of their game running in Wine instead. If I want to run your game in Wine, I can do that myself. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I have gone to game developers' websites. I've tried to buy or download a demo of their game. I open the DMG, and there's an app bundle called Untitled.app. The icon is a Wine logo. And it's pretty obvious that you basically half-assed your entire Mac version. Um, and the issue with this is... Oh, by the way, I should probably say what Wine is, if you're not aware. Uh, Wine stands for... Uh, Wine is not an emulator, which is a clever backronym. Uh, it is basically a shim layer that takes Windows code and runs it on other platforms. Uh, and... In recent years, this has also included games because they've added support for DirectX and all of that stuff. And some variants of Wine are particularly targeting games, so they have added support. There are even commercial forks of Wine that do even better stuff. And some companies, like I believe EA, for certain games, has actually shipped their game in Wine, but they actually put effort into it. Whereas this is sort of like, I dragged my .exe onto Wineskin Generator, pressed OK, and put it on my website, uh, which is different. Um, the problem, of course, with running through Wine is things that you expect would work might not work because you are completely dependent on what Wine supports. And this also means that Wine can be completely fragile to OS updates and you have no control as the game developer as to the update schedule of Wine or whether or not there is even a Mac OS X maintainer of Wine or what is going on with the underlying frameworks. Uh... So one of the examples that I've encountered, your Windows game might actually present a UI to uh, customize the bindings for game controllers. That feature might not work at all if you're running through Wine. And if someone buying your game doesn't actually know the implications of running through Wine, they can be under the impression that your game is just broken. And then when they complain to you as the game developer, you don't have the recourse to actually fix the game controller supporting Wine because actually being a game developer and being a wine developer are two completely different skill sets that you're probably not going to mix. So my begging to developers, game developers, is if you're not going to make a Mac version, please don't make a Mac version. Leave wine for tinkerers because they actually have expectations that stuff might not work sometimes. And if you leave it to the masses, your product is going to suck for reasons beyond your control and it's going to make you look bad. 
Okay, so that, so that was the wine bubble. Do you have anything to add on that before I move on to the next game complaint? The last game complaint. Oh, no, no, not, not that much. Uh, I think uh, you're hitting the nail pretty hard and let's go. Let's okay. continue. Okay, okay, okay. This is the last one. This is something I call gatekeeper forgetfulness. Game developers who make Mac versions who are not Mac developers tend to not keep up to date with what the best practices are for distributing Mac apps that aren't sold through the Mac App Store. And I have seen many indie game developers who sell their game on- games online, either via the Humble Store or itch.io, which is sort of like an indie, uh, indie version of Steam. They forget to sign their game with a developer ID certificate. Now, the implication of that is you download the game, and then your computer tells you, this wasn't signed by a developer, so I'm not letting you launch it. And it's actually super easy to launch the game anyway. You right-click on it and open it. But that is not obvious to end users who have never had to do this before. And what bugs me the most about this problem, and this is not for all developers, there are some developers that I've mentioned this to, and they fixed it right away, and they were really on it. Um, but many game developers simply refuse to believe that they are in the wrong for not signing their game with developer ID. Instead, what they do is they publicly disagree with the notion that Apple should be dis- disabling unsigned apps by default, and then they just tell all of their future users, instead of signing their app, to basically go change the setting in the settings because they disagree with it, and then that setting, of course, may impact their system security in the long term, which I completely disagree with because the setting is there for security reasons. And while you might be a perfectly like up and up, I am a smart person who uses a computer correctly. There are some people out there that when they see, oh, install this plugin so you can watch more porn, they will click on that button and they will do it. And then their computer is going to be compromised and screwed. So please, game developers, just sign with developer ID. It's not hard. So that's the game development section of the show. It's funny because uh, two-thirds of the game development section can be summarized by saying, yeah, game developers don't work on the Mac. Yeah, that too. You could just work on consoles, but don't use Unity, please. <laughs> uh, next up is mobile development. And this is going to be interesting because I get to share a little bit of details about my job search uh, in the process of doing this one. Uh During my recent job search, I was looking for both iOS and web development jobs because I like doing both. And it sort of shocked me to figure out just what degree of jobs that call themselves iOS development do not qualify as what I consider to be iOS development. Most of the jobs I was seeing involved some level of a cross-platform development framework, whether it's Apache Cordova, Xamarin, or React Native. And we're going to talk about all of them. Uh... Seeing this reality firsthand made me feel like none of the experience I have in Objective-C and Swift is viewed as valuable on the market because everybody else is off using weird intermediate tools. And it must really kill Apple to see what happened in the classic Mac be repeated again on iOS where developers are latching onto, let's be honest, sort of shitty third-party development tools over their official tools and they're becoming the bottleneck for whatever new features Apple introduces. So I'm going to go through all of these and point out what is wrong with them. I should also point out, there was that thing you linked me to uh, about React Native, which I found really funny. Uh, could you sort of summarize that very quickly for the listeners? I forgot which one is it because I'm linking okay. uh, well, to anyway, those one a lot. Can uh, you remind me a bit? I'm just I, like... I only know like half of it, but basically there was this app, I think it's called WWDC Family. Oh yeah, okay, that one. That one is super funny then. <laughs> yeah. uh, that one, what happened is... Yes, this WWDC family app is a nice way to see who's going to WWDC and I think where they are located. 
because I think it's kind of a Find My Friends, but for WWDC, not in Find My Friends. And it seems, I didn't know that, but it seems that this app is developed in React Native, and recently they used the uh, push a new update without going through the App Store feature, uh, the App Store review process feature, and it made the application crash. That's nice. Oh, yes, it is. There's going to be more fun React Native-related uh, anecdotes. in the. <laughs> and it's funny, we won't be able to link it in the show notes, but one of the Apple devs was making some like big burns <laughs> on Twitter, but the tweet got As deleted. they should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But the tweet got deleted, and the only thing I have is a screenshot, which nah, at this point, I won't share. Cool. Uh, so let's start off with Apache Cordova. This was previously named oh PhoneGap. Yes. Th- I only have one bullet for this. Uh, it just says no. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and- you don't know how much I can agree with that. No, <laughs> I hope it's like it, like it in like 72 in your screen right now. Just no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the reason I don't really want to talk about it now is because a lot of the stuff that I'm going to mention overlaps with what I'm going to be talking about in the d- desktop development section. So I'm just going to save it all for that section. Uh, we have enough to say about the other technologies anyway. But- yeah, I'm sure you'll be eating uh, other new recent technologies that is kind of like Cordova was the precursor of what is React Native. I know it changed a bit, and yes, it's kind of like driving native control through the web and stuff like that, but it was kind of the first attempt. It survived a long time. I think it's still alive, but kind of the old solution, so people are just From like one of the away. interviews I had, it seems like a lot of the people who invested in PhoneGap have noticed the error of their ways. The, however, the issue is that they're going... To, towards another cross-platform development framework instead of going towards the actual official Apple stuff. But at least they're not on PhoneGap any, anymore. Like, it, the only reason I have just no for this thing is if you have to use a cross-platform development framework, use literally anything else. It, it will be <laughs> way, way better, except please do not use PhoneGap slash Cordova. Okay, so Next up, I want to talk about two technologies that are sort of similar, so I lumped them together. Uh, React Native from Facebook and NativeScript from Telerik. So the reason these are related is because both of these are versions of functional reactive programming view frameworks from the web, uh, React and Angular, transposed onto native mobile UI controls. So in the case of React, you're developing in JavaScript, and in the case of uh, NativeScript, you're developing in TypeScript, because that is what Angular 2 and onwards expects to write the bulk of your application's UI. Uh, it does allow for code reuse between client-side web and mobile uh, development, which is nice, I guess. Uh, there's even more reuse possible if your web app is developed in the same framework. So if you're using React on the web and React Native on mobile, you can share some code there. If you're using Angular on the web and you're using Native Script in mobile, you can use code between the two. Uh, of course, assuming they're on the same version, which with Angular versions move so fast, it's kind of crazy. They're on Angular 5, I think, now. It's crazy. Uh, both frameworks actually do make it possible to write an application that is common to iOS and Android, deploy them, and magically inherit the UI conventions of a platform, which I have some respect for, because a lot of other, other frameworks, they would just show a generic UI that looked exactly the same on both, this, at least it tries to stick to the UI conventions of the platform somewhat. And one of the examples for this is there is a navigation component that you can use that turns into, I believe it's called the action bar on Android. At least that's what it used to be called back when I went to Google iOS like six years ago. And uh, 
on Android, uh, on iOS, it would be UI navigation bar. Uh, React Native does strongly encourage developers to use forking of their application to some extent to adhere more strongly to the target platform's UI conventions instead of being 100% consistent across all their platforms. And Native Script doesn't seem to be as concerned by this, uh, presumably because like Facebook has a lot of big name designers that they have acquired over the years with discriminating ta taste, and they would not let that fly. Whereas Telerik is sort of a random .NET web development shop, they tend to have like less of that kind of opinion in-house, so that sort of guides the direction of the thing. React Native does allow you to map components, uh, which are its building blocks, to existing UI view classes. So if you're using an external API and you need to provide that view to React Native, you can just bind the two and access it in your React Native app. So it becomes a lot easier to integrate with existing technologies, whereas other frameworks, it's not that easy. Um, you can expose native methods as helper methods in uh, JavaScript to allow you to interact with a wider range of stuff if it's not available natively to you, via, well, natively from the framework. Um, so overall, I think that these are sane options for many developers, but they do have caveats that become a big liability later. Uh, no access to the native underlying controls. Yeah, there are a lot of provided components that are based on existing UI kit widgets like na navigation bars or tab bars, but it doesn't mean that you can access those raw objects and do things to them. And this is sort of by design. Uh, the functional reactive programming uh, paradigm only behaves nicely if you manipulate it. Uh, if you man manipulate it through the basically the the religion that is enforced by the framework, basically. If you manipulate the objects directly, it sort of screws the entire thing up because you're not meant to have access to them. So it can bother some people. But it's, of course, limiting because if you care about a specific property or behavior of that class that React Native doesn't expose to you, you're sort of screwed. You can't really do anything about it. And in most cases, those functionality or property are kind of, like, platform-based. Yeah. Um... Now, there's another possibility, and I think this is a risk, but it's not a huge, huge risk. Like, I don't think it's going to happen, but it's possible, which is why I sort of have it listed here. Facebook has reinvented UIKit more times than I can count, and nothing is stopping them in the future from making React Native suddenly start using Facebook Kit instead of UIKit, and suddenly you can't really do anything about it. Uh, having that middleman cut off control from you, the developer, means that they can pull a bait and switch anytime. And the worrisome thing about this is it would mean that basically any of ch the changes that Apple makes or improvements that Apple makes to underlying UI classes would never permeate to React Native applications because you'd be using Facebook's UI framework. And even if it tries to mimic the native iOS controls, it's still just mimicking and it won't be 100% consistent. I'm surprised that it's something that they haven't done yet. I know you're talking about the fact that it sh could happen in the future, and I'm more erring on the other side of saying, like, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, so I would guess that it would happen soon enough. I would not be surprised if they actually do this in the Facebook app. Like, that sounds reasonable to me. Um, I think they're sort of wary about doing it to all the third-party developers, but it's sort of always something that could happen. And, like, React Native, in theory, like, it's independent of whatever the underlying UI framework is. So you can sort of make it so uh, uh, I can't remember what the the thing was called for uh, 
rendering everything in uh, core animation layers instead of UI views. But uh, Facebook oh, has this that. library that basically renders stuff to CA layers instead of UI views. And, and it ain't the one that does that on like the async kit? Yeah, async, async display kit. I think that's what it's called. Like you could theoretically just make uh, React Native use async display kit and you would get suddenly performance benefits. But if you think about how the app works, how the entire rendering pipeline would be completely different than a UI kit app. And you might not necessarily be able to determine what the implications of that would be on your whole application if you encounter a weird bug or something. So I want to close the React Native section with a funny little anecdote. And it's one of the jobs that I saw when I was searching for iOS development jobs. I told you about this offline and we thought it was very funny. Uh, there was a company in Toronto that was looking for an Objective-C and Swift developer in desperation that could translate their company's application from React Native back into Objective-C or Swift because they regretted their decision of going with React Native. And that made me laugh so much. And it was, I think at the time, I, I will need to find that link from our private discussion, but it was around the time when a big indie iOS developer was saying that they went full-on React Native yeah. and it was the best move they could have done in the in the recent years. And then you find that job where another people was like, no, 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 no we, we, we... Please, anything but React Native. <laughs> yes. Okay, so the next technology I want to talk about is Xamarin, which is owned by Microsoft and it effectively is a way of getting C-sharp application development on iOS and Android. And at the base level, it's exactly that. It acts merely as a means of providing the C-sharp language atop native platform APIs provided on iOS or Android. It behaves a lot like what you would expect a bridge to look like, uh, but it's not a bridge. And the compilation process is the, is the only middleman between you and the native APIs. There is basically nothing else introduced between you and the native APIs. Uh, with base Xamarin, you cannot write a cross-platform application out of the box because the UI frameworks and the standard libraries that are provided to you are inconsistent from one platform to the other. Asterisk. Uh, we will get back to that asterisk in a sec. Uh, in the past, Xamarin could, from time to time, lag behind on API headers for the latest version of the operating system. Nowadays, they claim that they have same-day compatibility, uh, but it's unclear to me if it's done dynamically by looking at your Xcode install and generating C-sharp headers from whatever it sees, or if there's literally a guy on a pager uh, on call to so that when there's an Xcode update, he goes into the office and he makes new C-sharp headers. Not sure which one it is. I secretly sort of hope it's the pager guy, uh, because I like pagers. Uh, my main concern was Xamarin, is an implementation detail that may backfire, and that is that it seems to be fundamentally married to the Objective-C runtime, and the day that Apple ships Swift-first APIs, Xamarin will start falling behind on the newest iOS and Mac features. And presumably Microsoft has a team that is working on figuring this stuff out for when it inevitably happens, but it's worrisome to me that we don't really know anything about how close we are to that reality. It could be next week. Uh, we don't know if they have actually gotten anything to work so that when that day comes they are ready it's completely unknown and i would be very wary as a developer to base my application on something that is basically a house of cards at this point uh it sort of worries me and i'm sure there are a lot of very smart developers and microsoft who are working towards this but i'm not sure if they can do anything about it um funnily enough 
much like Apple's own developer website, Xamarin's developer documentation search commonly links you to 404 errors. Uh, so I literally <laughs> could not find anything about it because all of the pages that looked oh. like they might talk about it were dead links. So, And obviously, it is the only page that people from all over the internet saying, oh yeah, it is in that page on the Apple documentation, and then that section is gone. Hello, core data documentation. Core data documentation is like that all the time. <laughs> Yay. I sort of wonder if they have like an automatic uh, like search converter where they send the search to Apple and then they get a 404 page from Apple and then they're like, okay, let's translate this into the Xamarin 404 page or something. It would be really funny. Uh, so yeah, the, the asterisk that I mentioned earlier on, uh, that out of the box, there's no way to write a cross-platform app. Kind of. So there is the Xamarin Forms library. This is not the default way they teach you to use Xamarin, which I believe is good because I would not want anyone to use Xamarin Forms. Uh, but it is a way that you can actually use Xamarin to make UI widgets that are common across iOS, Android, and for some reason Mac. Uh, but it's really, really bad, so please don't use it. Uh, there's another uh, library called Reactive UI, which is sort of the equivalent to Reactive Cocoa, but for Xamarin that lets you write hybrid apps that run on both iOS and Android and use a reactive pattern. Uh, but yeah, I would strongly recommend developers to just share business logic objects and model classes across platforms and do the UI separately because then you are much closer to what is actually considered to be real iOS development because you're using the same APIs that real iOS developers are using. You're just using them from another language. And you also have the bonus advantage of being able to share that business logic code across both platform, blah, both both platforms, which right now we cannot do as Objective C or Swift developers. Yeah, I always considered kind of examining it being in its own class of cross-platform uh, tools. It always felt to me that the the, the kind of the first goal of it was you're a dot and dev. You have business logic in your enterprise that is all .NET and all Microsoft stack. We won't tell you. You write your UI once and it runs everywhere like what everybody assumes it's a cross-platform uh, development is. It's just that you can take your business logic because we all made sure from the Microsoft mentor of development saying like, okay, yes, you separate your business logic from your data and from your UI and all of those separation should have already been done and assumed from your current project. And then you use it, put it in the same project, use the same tools, whether it's Microsoft tools or any like external third party, uh, C sharp .NET tools that you use for code quality purposes. And then you just write not Objective-C, but you just write UI classes. You just need to, at that point, you just need to learn how the, what's the code architecture and the code style that is used to build UI kit and all of the Apple frameworks while still being in a language that may, uh, that is familiar to you. You have, you might have tons of years of experience with it. And also it might have featured that for example, Objective-C doesn't have, maybe Swift has it now, but Objective-C doesn't have it, and now you're just used to it. So you just call it UI view controller and UI kit elements all the time, but in a language that you love so much. Yeah, I was listening to ATP recently, and Casey keeps harping on, like, he really wants async await uh, keywords in Swift, and I I'm not necessarily sure that Apple is going to get on board with that, because I think maybe they disagree with that vision, but, like... 
you can use async await in Xamarin and it's there right now, right? So it's sort of really nice to have all of the language features you expect from C Sharp available there. And C Sharp is not a terrible language. Like I've, well, I'm going to be writing C Sharp again soon. So I mean, like it's a perfectly fine language. Uh, there are much more offensive languages out there. And the only thing I disagree with is again, like you never know when that house of cards is going to start coming down. And especially now that we have Swift here and the runtime model is very different. It's worrisome to build. I would not build a new application now on Xamarin. I would really not recommend that. Interesting, because I was about to say maybe that was a, a bit jumping the gun, but I would say that the Xamarin solution is kind of the best, or the, the best, I wouldn't say the best, but I think it's the, it is kind of the best middleman that you can have without being too much super cross-platform, super like generic, you don't know about any platform, and then not being like super one platform is one app. You'd have another code base for a different app on a different platform, and then there's like little to nothing code share between those platforms. Yeah, I, I agree that it's the best the best of the cross-platform development environments that we've mentioned for mobile. Uh, but the thing is, I'm, I'm not talking so much about the quality of it. I'm just saying like, which of these is going to have a future in five years? And the oh, other ones yeah. don't actually depend on anything that is going to explode overnight. Whereas right now we're sort of in this period of flux where we're sort of transitioning between Objective-C and Swift as the main development language for a lot of people. And that has implications on the technology that Xamarin is based on. And that is the worry. Like otherwise, if I, if I knew that like, uh, this would continue to work for like 10 years, I would be like, okay, sure, we do an app in Xamarin, that's fine. But it's just the uncertainty about that transition that sort of basically means I don't want to risk that transition fucking my entire app over if I use Xamarin. Yeah, got it now. So it, it's more on the side of you would like to maybe write cross-platform uh, cross code using Xamarin, but you don't want to be the person in two or three years asking for an Objective-C or Swift developer <laughs> exactly. to rewrite their Xamarin apps. Which, at this point, you do, uh, you do have a point that it is the main downside right now for Xamarin. But I, I don't know why, but I have some hope. Microsoft is kind of doing like interesting and it's putting big money into mobile developments, solutions, tools... Um uh, and the push and another example. I'm going on a small tangent, but a good example of that is the Winabshi bridge that they are building. They are putting a lot of effort into that, and like you mentioned, this and we talk about that uh, bridge in the past, and it is another technology from Microsoft where they're putting a shit ton of money where, and we don't know where it will be in two three years, knowing that Swift is around. Yeah. So let's move on to desktop development, or as I like to call it, Electron sucks. <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, Electron is a framework that is put together by the wonderful people over at GitHub. Uh, it allows developers to make cross-platform development, uh, cross-platform desktop apps using web technologies. And the two primary underlying technologies to the Electron framework are Chromium, which is the engine that powers Google Chrome, uh, the open source version of Google Chrome, actually, and Node.js, which is a super popular JavaScript runtime environment. And about a month ago, there was this trend on Mac Press Twitter about how bad the Slack app is on the Mac. And Slack uh, is, an, well, the Slack desktop app is written in Electron. 
people were complaining about how much RAM was being used up by the Slack app, among other things. And I started writing a really, really angry blog post. And eventually I realized this is a really bad idea to make as a angry blog post. It would be a much better podcast, which is why we are here today. Uh, oh, that explains a lot now. Yeah. I sort of just put everything into the notes instead. Uh, so before we get into the actual issues with Electron, uh, well, first thing, a lot of this applies to PhoneGap because PhoneGap is effectively sort of the same thing except for mobile. Uh, and a lot of the issues that I'm going to talk about apply there, except for stuff that is specific to uh, Chromium, because you can't really embed Chromium uh, on iOS due to run uh, rules that disallow you to do it. Um, but first, I want to point out this sort of error that people make when equating RAM usage to wastefulness. And this doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the episode, but it's something that really grinds my gear, so I'm going to talk about it. And that thing is, people will look at processes that are running on their computer, or they will look at the amount of free memory on their computer, more often than not. They're going to say, wow, I have 256 megs left. I have no RAM left on my machine. I need to close all of the processes. And when you think about it, like, if you're always optimizing to have as much memory free as possible, what is the RAM in your computing serving as its purpose. Like, it just sits there being empty 99% of the time because you're obsessed with looking at how much free memory you have on your computer, and your RAM might sit there three-quarters of the time sitting, like, mostly unused because you are obsessed with having as little stuff running on your computer at a time. Um, you can also, like, bring this back to the long multitasking debate on iOS, which is people go to the task switcher, they quit all of their apps, and you're like, why are you doing this? One, the system is supposed to do it for you, so you're not supposed to have to manage that stuff. It's doing it all automatically anyway. Uh, of course, people never listen to that. Uh, and, like, your apps are going to have to reallocate all of that memory and bring it back to, to the state where it was before. Whereas if you just keep it in memory, it doesn't have to go anywhere, and you have instant app switching, which is great, which is, like, the whole feature that's how the multitasking was introduced in the first place it was called instant app switching uh so ios in particular is a platform that like you will almost if you actually do use the tools to look at how much free memory there is on your phone there is rarely that much memory that is free on an iphone but that's because it is trying to make optimal optimal use of your ram at all times and this is less frequent on desktops but i just want people to stop equating ram usage to wastefulness because that isn't necessarily the case however in the case of electron it turns out to be true most of the time uh so... <laughs> okay that's nice so that tangent is over let's move on to issue 1 which is that electron is based on chromium and mac users are penalized for using chrome or chromium as their browser because it's sort of a piece of shit when it comes to resource management and let me explain that a little bit. OS X Mavericks introduced a handy little feature called the Batteries Shaming Menu, where if you click on the battery in your menu bar, it shows you all of the applications that are making wasteful use of system resources and are negatively impacting your battery life. And if you use Chrome, uh, you may actually be familiar with the fact that it is sort of a permanent resident of that menu if you are displaying anything that is not a blank page. Uh, so, congratulations. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I, f I forgot to tell you. Uh, I got the secret note from Apple telling me that it's kind of the new place now for your favorite apps. It's just a, a it's just a shortcut to learn them faster. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Ah, uh, you see now. Oh mm, yeah, I missed the old Apple menu, but now it's in the battery menu, so that makes total sense. Uh, 
So, uh, like, people don't believe me when I tell them this. They're like, oh, no, you're exaggerating. It can't be that bad. Like, Chrome can't really fuck up my battery. Uh, well, every time there's a new MacBook that comes out, uh, go look at the reviews. And if you see battery life numbers that are consistently about an hour less than everybody else, that's because they use Chrome. And you can tell just from looking at that. And usually if it's like The Verge or whatever and they have a video review and you look at which browser they're using in those things, it usually confirms your suspicion that they're Chrome users and that the battery actually gets an hour or an hour and a half more battery life if you use Safari, which is like, what? Okay. Uh, so in, in conclusion, Chrome is the Adobe Flash of 2017. Uh, but the problem is Electron sort of makes the problem even worse because suddenly if you have multiple... Electron applications, you're using multiple instances of Chrome at a time. And that just compounds the effect, which I don't, I don't think like it scales proportionally. I don't think like you lose two hours if you use two Electron apps at the same time. Like that would be a little bit overboard, but there is still some added effect from having, um, memory and resource hog suddenly come on and say, Oh yeah, by the way, we made all of these apps based on this memory hog. Why don't you install it? And now suddenly you have five memory hogs running at the same time on your computer, you know? So. I disagree with Electron based on that alone, but there are other issues, and that brings me to issue two, which is that web development has conditioned developers to make wasteful use of resources because of how the web works. And this is not meant to be a diss on web developers. In fact, my new job is web development, right? So I'm going to be a web developer again next week, and I was a web developer nine months ago. Uh, so I am probably just as guilty as this as anyone else. Uh, the difference is that I don't inflict this stuff on people by pretending that my web page is a desktop app. Uh, so the primary metrics that web development tools present to developers are load time and transfer size. Because a long time ago, Google did some research showing how important the initial load time is to conversion into insert actionable thing on your website here. And meaning that it sort of basically means that that is the only metric that developers care about on the web for the most part. They don't really ever have to think about the RAM footprint of their web page. I mean, like, do you ever think about the RAM footprint of your web page when you do web development? No. And part of that is because JavaScript is not a language that makes memory management explicit. Um, I'm not arguing that all languages should have explicit memory management, but like, if you're a web developer, when was the last time you thought about memory? Like, uh, a couple, actually, this is not a couple episodes ago. It's just I was listening to it recently. Uh, when, um, uh, what's his name? The Swift guy. God damn it. Chris Latner. Oh, uh, Chris Latner. When Chris yeah. Latner was on ATP, uh, they had this whole discussion about, uh, garbage collection versus, uh, ARC. And they were talking about basically, like, as a developer, even if garbage collection is taking care of getting rid of uh, dirty memory or whatever, like you still have to think about memory to a certain degree in your application. You can't just carelessly do things because you might carelessly leak memory all over the place. And if you do that, garbage collector isn't going to give a shit and it's going to leave that memory there. Uh, and JavaScript is very much that way in the browser. Like, you you never, ever think about memory leaks. And the reason you don't think about it is because, on average, web pages stay in a user's browser for such a short period of time that it's unlikely to ever present an issue in practice because memory leaks usually uh, show up over time. They bubble up over the length, uh, the the lifespan of the page. 
And when your page is open for 22 seconds, it doesn't really have the time to bubble up to a huge size that actually impacts performance in any meaningful way. To make matters worse, uh, modern web development revolves around third-party view frameworks like React or Angular or whatever. Uh, and that abstracts away most of what is happening in the browser from the developer, so it makes it even tougher to evaluate what the memory and performance implications of your app are long-term. Uh, so if you're using React or Angular to develop the Neutron app, you sort of don't really know what the implications of using that technology is. And did they consider those implications when they were implementing those frameworks? Who knows? They're web developers. Probably not. Um... Not to say that there are no smart people in web development who think about all this stuff. Uh, I'm sure that the, there are very smart people on the Angular team who consider this stuff to a certain degree. But if you're primarily targeting the web, you don't really have any incentive to care about it. Because, again, web pages are generally open for a very limited amount of time. Next up, the usage patterns of apps and web pages are very different, especially with modern web browsers. You can always bookmark web pages and revisit them later, so there's no real value in leaving them open any longer than you need them to be. Now, there's going to be like John Syracuse who's going to send in follow-up and say, I have 350 million windows on my computer with seven tabs each. Uh, but aside from those people, uh, I think most sane people just sort of like bookmark web pages or have very few web pages open at a time because you can always go back to the web page. And if a web page crashes in a modern browser, the tab crashes... Only that tab. Back in the old days, it was the entire browser, which is kind of nuts when you think about it. And you can just refresh that tab and nothing is lost. And this sort of works against the kinds of apps that tend to be made with Electron, because they fall into one of two categories. And both of, both of them really sort of strongly incentivize you to keep them open in the background as long as possible. There's development tools. If you're a developer you probably have your text editor open 100% of the time on your computer. And if you're using Atom or Visual Studio Code, you may see a different performance profile in your computer than you would normally see using any other text editor. And I noticed this stuff because I do tend to use Visual Studio Code from time to time. There's Hyper, which is a terminal app, which is uh, programmed in Electron. There's GitHub Desktop. And the other category, of course, is communication tools. So Slack, Discord, Twitch app... All of these things are, well, I want people to be able to communicate with me, so if I want to get the notifications, I want to leave the app open, and if I leave the app open, there are more chances of memory leaks and the footprint growing bigger and bigger over time. And it also go with usage, right? Because maybe the memory leak is just happening in a specific workflow, and the problem is not that it's left open, it's that you do that workflow like 10 times per day or 100 times per day, and then every time you do it, you just take a couple of kilobytes, and then if you do it for a thousand times, then it's a lot of memory being leaked. Yeah. Imagine a leak when you press K, and if you <laughs> type the letter K a lot in your text editor, that becomes a problem. Man, poor Vim users. Uh, but... Yeah, so it's a good thing Vim isn't written in Electron. Uh, and of course, if the situation gets out of control, the app might crash. And it turns out that it actually takes longer to relaunch an app than refreshing a web page. Uh, so, like, you would actually benefit if you were using these apps as a web page in your browser, because it would be less of a pain when they crash than if you use them in some crazy app shell. And of course, the last issue is something that is sort of the running theme of the entire episode, which is complete disregard for platform UI conventions. One of the things that prompted me to start this topic was an argument that I had with a game developer I know who was talking about how great Electron was on Twitter. Uh, and his argument was, 
all native frameworks, native UI frameworks suck, and Electron makes it easier to develop desktop applications that have a better interface than what's possible with native interface frameworks. And on top of that, it's cross-platform, so it's awesome. And I agree with that premise if the computing world was restricted to Windows and Linux. However, the Mac exists and we are snobby motherfuckers. <laughs> so Windows users have had the unfortunate reality of mostly being given horrible UI frameworks over the years. However, there have been better, more modern ones since Windows 8. However, since Windows 8, they have been flip-flopping about which one is actually the correct one to use. So there is no direction for developers who want to use the good uh, modern UI framework because it seems to change with every version of Windows. It has changed since Windows 7, Windows 8, and now Windows 10. Um, so very unclear if you're a developer. And also, by the way, Windows users are incredibly change-averse and therefore they never upgrade their systems to the new stuff. So you still have to backwards combat with the old stuff. And it's basically, yeah, you should probably use Electron. It would be a lot easier than having to deal with that nightmare. Linux users have always had to de deal with competing widget frameworks like Qt, GTK, and often they have multiple versions which do not look consistent between each other. Uh, like, I know people who have Qt 3, Qt 4, and like, you know, I think there's Qt 5 now, uh, using different themes on their computers, and I'm like, how can you use this computer? It is unusable because the buttons don't look the same everywhere. Uh, so there is no way on Windows or Linux to achieve user interface harmony where everything looks like it's a coherent platform. And because it's a free-for-all, that means that people who use the, those platforms don't actually see anything unacceptable about Electron because everything is the Wild West. Meanwhile, on the Mac, there is a mostly coherent aesthetic that is laid forward by Apple and revised upon by Apple every few years. And developers hop onto the, that aesthetic because it's one of the reasons that people chose Macs as a platform in the first place. And the more native apps get replaced with Electron apps over time, the less Macs feel like Macs, and it diminishes the value of the Mac relative to other platforms because you might as well just be using a fucking Chrome OS laptop at that point. Uh, and if you want to have a fancy web page as your native app, my suggestion is just own it, make it a web page, and stop trying to masquerade it as a native app because otherwise... People who are snobby like me are going to judge you, and it will be terrible. And that is this week's episode. Wow. I'm speechless. I'm seriously speechless. You, you will end your topic this way? Yes. Wow. Okay. I mean, it, if we keep going on, it loses its punch. Okay. So that was it for Tianik's topic. If you want to find... All of the links for this week's episode, especially all of the Yannick pitching about all of those cross-platform cross I'm going technology. to link so many Electron apps. It's going to be so great. Good. So if you want to... Ruin your Mac. Yeah. If you, or create a blacklist of apps you should never install, go to our show notes where you will be able to find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash... 64. Oh, actually, speaking of web development, I should actually throw in there that the site should be getting faster. Yeah, I was about to say, too, that this website is accessible through a web browser, not through a native app. It's true. Can you imagine how bad it would be as an Electron app? Maybe we Maybe should we make should... it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll continue with the outro before we have other good uh, Great ideas. ideas like this. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Make me pull great again. That's what we'll call, we'll oh, call it. Oh, God. Okay. So if you want to 
take a look and at all of our other show notes for all of our episodes and also download all of our other episodes if you want to go through our back catalog you can go to limitlesspossibility.net you can also find the show on twitter and it's latest news when Yannick is bitching about something at on twitter at at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast you can also find myself when uh, i do some fancy tweets or at oh the things I love to do these days on Twitter is retweets when Yannick is subtweeting me. That's amazing. Usually, <laughs> usually it's screenshot of our personal conversation. So you can get the glimpse of our personal conversation in lines. And you go at, at Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-E-C-H-E. And you can also find Yannick at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And before we end, we you need to mention one thing you do funny on your Twitter account. I don't do anything funny on Twitter. And that's what Philippe is out. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.